Charger fans are witnesses to history. This is the Lightning Round Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Sisti and Jamie Hoyle. Go Chargers, go! Welcome to the Lightning Round Podcast. We are your hosts for your favorite Chargers podcast. I am Garrett Sisti at Garrett Sisti on Twitter. You can follow Jamie and the podcast at Lightning underscore round. And we're ready to talk about this thrilling win in London. But we got to give a shout out to a generous donation this week. Yeah, a big thank you goes out to Josh Albrickson for a very generous donation. Uh, we appreciate the support, Josh. Thank you very much. Thank you for continuing to listen, for donating to the beer fund. And, uh, you know, like we always say, we appreciate everybody who supports us, whether it's with money or listening to the show or communicating through the app or on Twitter or whatever it might be or rating us on iTunes. We appreciate all of it. Just we appreciate the money a little bit more. But thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. Very generous. And uh, you might have caught it this week. Jamie put a little tweet out from the Lightning Round Podcast Twitter account. Uh, This coming Tuesday, uh, of course, it's a bye week for the Chargers, but uh, no bye week for Lightning Round Podcast. We're still going strong. Haven't missed a show ever. What, five seasons, Jamie? This is our fifth season, yep. Yep, haven't missed a show. We've moved the date around twice, I think, but uh, nope. No missed shows from us. No bye week. So next week, we're going to just go hard and take all the questions you guys have. Well, as many as we can. Uh, We're going to take questions from the app. Uh, Jamie talked about it on Twitter. If you guys have any questions you want to ask us, whether it's about this season, going forward, anything in particular or anything in between, uh, send us your questions. Uh, You can do it through the Lightning Round Podcast app. We're just going to collect them all through there. Uh, pick the best ones. And then also next week on the show, we're going to do the second half of the Chargers season prediction, uh, knowing that they're now 5-2. and two. We got uh, more predictions. We'll talk about it on next week's show. So if you got any questions, don't forget, send it through the Lightning Round Podcast app. And we're going to actually be recording that on Thursday. So get those in as soon as possible. Recording it early. I'm going out of town. But podcast still out on Tuesday. So... Let's go ahead and get into this game. We got some important storylines to talk about because it was a exciting game. It was early, but uh, they made it worth it. So, uh, talk to me about a storyline you took away from this game. So, my first storyline, which is more of a first half storyline than a game storyline, is Philip Rivers, the MVP candidate, uh, the player that you know Garrett and I both thought they needed to find a replacement for last season. We were down on him after the first Kansas City game. Uh, we are eating our words in a big, big way this season. Uh, he's been playing basically his best football since week 11 of last year. And just to throw out some numbers, just to give you guys an idea of how well he's playing, I'm sure you've all got them committed to memory, but we'll just go that way anyway. Another 300-yard game on Sunday, two more touchdowns. They scored 20 points on 44 offensive plays, and he hit two more big explosive plays for touchdowns of over 50 yards. Uh, he was, I believe, 19 of 26 for 306. He averaged somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 or 15 yards of completion, which is pretty damn impressive. Or I'm sorry, an attempt, which is even better. Uh, on the season, he is, he's been amazing. Short of the Cleveland game, which was probably his worst, well, it was definitely his worst game of the year, statistically speaking. Uh, he's been just razor sharp. He's completed... Uh, he's thrown, he's completed passes for 2008 yards, 17 to three touchdown interception ratio, 117.4 quarterback rating. And he is averaging 9.13 yards per attempt, which is, I believe 
first or second in the league, if I'm not mistaken. So he is on fire. And like I said, playing the best football of his career since week 11 last year, he just seems to be in a zone and getting the team into the right plays, making the right decisions. If it's something isn't exactly the way he thinks it should be, he's throwing it away instead of forcing it into coverage. And he has been fantastic. So for me, as this run hopefully continues to build, as they continue to force themselves into relevance and start to you know, force talks about playoff, deep season playoff runs and things like that, uh, Phillip should be at the forefront of MVP discussions. He's probably somewhere in the top three at this point and should be climbing his way up towards a Jared Goff or a Patrick Mahomes based on the way he's played, especially over the last few weeks. Yeah, absolutely. I think each week we don't specifically call out Philip Rivers, but he could easily be a storyline each and every week because he's just been so damn good and so consistent. And yeah, definitely playing some of the best football I can remember Philip Rivers ever playing, and they are red hot because of it. Five and two going into the bye, uh, very good while missing some key players. So obviously that's a good one, not one of mine, but. Uh, I want to get one off the top because I know you're, it's probably going to lead into something you're going to want to talk about because uh, you talked about him a lot on Twitter. But I just want to condemn Adrian – or condemn. I want to <laughs> – That's the wrong choice See, of words, Garrett. And that's, and that's the thing too because I, I've I'm always been ready to condemn Adrian Phillips because he's been so bad <laughs> in the past. But let's celebrate him because he was great and he's been great ever since Kaiser White went down and win. The word is commend, by the way. Commend, yeah, of not course, condemn. Yeah, of course. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> And I went with celebrate, but yeah, either C word that isn't condemn. Uh, see, that's a force of habit. That's uh, falling back on my old terms. But uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, he has been so good since Kaiser White went down. And once Kaiser White comes back, I don't know if you can take him off the field. He's just been that good. He was the team's third leading tackler on Sunday. He had a beautiful tackle for a loss. It was second and four. They was the Chargers' eight-yard line. They were driving at that point. They ended up kicking a field goal on that possession. He made a couple special teams tackles. And, you know, on that sequence that ended the game, Adrian Phillips made an almost game-saving tackle on Marcus Mariota short of the goal line where this is a game the Chargers were very poor in tackling. They couldn't wrap up Mariota at all. And they probably missed four or five sacks that game where – Mariota basically squeezed out of pressure, uh, eluded tackles, and was able to get some gains out of it. So Phillips had Mariota one-on-one a few steps before the goal line. He wrapped him up, and Mariota tried to dive into the end zone. He ultimately came up short, and the Titans ended up scoring. But the fact that he was able to make a play when he needed to was huge. And then when you go to the last play of the game on that two-point conversion after they had already scored, it was Adrian Phillips who deflected that pass attempt by Marcus Mariota. Chargers win that game. Adrian Phillips has been very good ever since Kaiser White has gone down. And I'm not saying Kaiser White should be cut out of the linebacker rotation. I'm not saying that. But when he comes back, I don't think you can take Adrian Phillips off the field. I think you have got to take Jatavis Brown off the field at that point, stick in some Kaiser White, and leave Phillips as his phone linebacker spot in nickel and dime. He has been so good. He deserves some praise, and I know I've quote-unquote condemned him in the past, but he played <laughs> great last year. Um, I thought they would sign him more than a one-year deal this season, or this offseason. Uh, he signed a one-year deal, and he's making the most of it. He got the opportunity, and he's won his old job back. Yeah, and actually that was my next point, you bastard. You stole my next point. (laughs) 
you, I mean, you said pretty much all of it, but my next, my next storyline was Adrian Phillips, once again, is pretty much everywhere on the field. Uh, he finished the game with seven tackles, had a tackle for loss where he read a running play, shot through a gap, yep. and tackled, I think it was Derrick Henry for a loss in the backfield, had the key pass breakup in the end zone on the two-point conversion. Yep. Uh, he had two huge special teams tackles on on returns that looked like they were going to break for possible touchdowns. If he doesn't make those tackles, I don't know that anybody does. You mentioned the tackle on Mariona at the goal line. He was fantastic. And he was – I think he's been really good now for three straight weeks. His statistic, Statistically speaking, he was kind of quiet last week. He only had like two tackles. But he was all over the field, and he played a key role in coverage. This week, he was all over the field. He was making tackles left and right. He was, in my opinion, the best and most ins- instinctive, quote-unquote, linebacker the Chargers had on the field uh, in London by far. He outplayed both Jatavis Brown and Denzel Perriman in terms of reading and reacting and getting downhill and making plays. He was also very good in coverage. He had the one pass breakup. I thought he was, he undercut a couple routes, and, and uh, even though he didn't deflect the ball, he disrupted a couple of of uh, passing lanes on third downs. He was very, very good, and he continues to grow in that role as the dime linebacker. We've seen him play some will linebacker. Um, I think you know there are a lot of different ways to get him on the field. I think he's so good around the line of scrimmage, it's hard to move him to free safety. But you know, if you want to expand Rayshon Jenkins' role, maybe you get um, <clears throat> maybe you get some mix of. Kaiser White and Rayshon Jenkins down in the box, and you move um, you move Phillips out to free safety and see how he does out there. But he is playing so well that he has to be on the field. He has to continue to be one of the four or five guys getting the most snaps, defensively speaking, because of everything he's doing in all phases of the game. I mean, the one the one thing we're really not seeing from him is he's not very effective as a blitzer, but they're not really asking him to do that. And he's doing everything they're asking of him exceptionally well. And like I mentioned, adding value on defense and special teams. And I think the special teams play is ultimately what's pushing him up the the ladder in terms of his snap counts on defense. He's been fantastic. And this is another guy that we've been very critical of on the podcast. And we are eating some crow this season. Uh, I think he's been – I didn't think he was great last year. He filled an important role. He was put in a really rough spot in that line, that dime linebacker role when when Brown got hurt and Toomer struggled and the linebackers were playing poorly, and he filled in an important role and he showed some growth at the end of the year. And this year, it seems like he's taken two big steps forward. So, kudos to him for the work that he's put in. We're finally seeing some of the intelligence and the um, the instincts that the coaches have been preaching in training camps the last couple of years showing up in games and. He's making big plays, but I think he's not that far away from starting to make some really big plays, forcing turnovers and things like that. So kudos to him for the work that he's put in and the progress he's shown in his game because that's not an easy thing to do. Yep, we saw an interception earlier in the year and then makes this really big play on that two-point conversion, which was huge in when the Chargers really just needed one more play. So I'll go ahead and give you another one. And while watching this game, it, it kind of hit me, and it's not—it's kind of more looking towards the future than it is currently on Sunday. But what, while watching that game, it was almost like we were kind of getting a taste of what the Chargers' receiving core could be in 2019. 
you know, we saw Tyro Williams, another big game, 118 yards, the touchdown, one of that touchdown coming on that 75-yard bomb to begin the game. Mike Williams, he talked about, big splash play, that 55-yard touchdown. Keenan Allen up the middle, five catches, 72 yards. Uh, big contributions from all of them. And then Travis Benjamin, he was active this week, and he had 11 snaps on Sunday. And, you know, I think it might be a case that they're kind of working Travis Benjamin in because, he, you know, this is the first time he's been active since he was injured. But he's been out most of the year. He got 11 snaps on Sunday, and it seems like this could be the receiving core. You have Tyrell Williams as the guy who stretches the field, and maybe he's the favorite to re-sign with the Chargers of free agency because the team can cut Travis Benjamin and save $5.25 million. He's owed 6.5 in 2019, and I think it's a 1.25 cost to cut him, so you save 5.25. You know, with those three wideouts and how they're playing and how consistent Tyrell Williams has been in the last two games, it seems like this could be the receiving core. I know fans love Travis Benjamin. They talk about how he's fast, but you're seeing Tyrell Williams can stretch the field. You know, uh, he came down with an impressive catch on Sunday too, where he was right by the sideline where Rivers is scrambling to the right, and he was able to catch the ball and fall out of bounds. It was 26 yards. It was in the second quarter. It was a really good catch. And you know, it seems like if tra- if they are working Travis Benjamin in slowly. I don't know. I don't know how you get away from this rotation because Mike Williams has showed um, some impressive traits. Tyrell Williams has been hot the last two weeks. You, uh, Keenan Allen's still eating up the middle of the field, and if Tyrell Williams stays consistent, that's great. And you you saw Mike Williams, who probably should have had another touchdown pass in the end zone where he kind of more trapped the ball against his pads, which isn't good technique, especially when you're in tight quarters in the red zone. But uh, and you're six four, two twenty five, <laughs> and you got a 190-pound corner on your back. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's not great uh, technique. They don't teach that in wide receiver school. But, uh, you know, he was also targeted again in the red zone where he kind of felt like he was kind of dragged down from behind on that point. But um, – Becoming a red zone weapon, uh, they like to go to him, uh, showing that he can stretch the field and uh, can pick up some extra yards on some reverses the last couple weeks. So, you know, between Mike Williams, Tyrell Williams, Keenan Allen, you might be looking at the receiving core going in 2019, and it's an easy cut to remove Travis Benjamin this offseason. Yeah, I feel like we've been saying that for two years now. <laughs> um. <laughs> it's much easier than it has in past years. Yeah, I, I agree. I think... Um... I'm not sure if they're working Benjamin in slowly or if they've just realized that they have better options. Uh, Let's hope. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing Keenan and Mike Williams and Tyrell Williams getting the bulk of the snaps. We saw a lot of two wide receiver sets on Sunday um, with Keenan and Tyrell. And Mike, I believe, brought was third in snaps with like 30, so he didn't play as many snaps as the other two guys did. So it seems like they're really growing into, you know, defined roles with all three of those particular players and Travis even now that he's healthy his snaps are not what they used to be and they shouldn't be because now you've got two guys on the outside who are you know six three six four who can go up and get the ball uh big strong hands guys who you know you think as they develop they're going to be able to make more contested catches and be big red zone targets for jump balls You've got Keenan, like you mentioned, chewing up yardage in the middle of the field. I mean, nobody can cover that guy in space. It's kind of ridiculous to see how frequently he's wide open with five to ten years of sep- five to ten yards of separation, and just nobody anywhere near him. And just imagine what that looks like when Hunter Henry comes back next year. I mean, there's so many options, and then you start talking about 
a guy like Artavis Scott, who made the team out of camp but got hurt and is going to be looking for another shot next next season. And it's probably going to be one of the first guys in line to be wide receiver four going into next season. You've got um, Dylan Cantrell. Uh, Dylan Cantrell, who they drafted this year, who they've kept on the practice squad. you got to figure they're going to want to work him in because they love their big body wide receivers. Um, so there are there are a couple guys who are probably more deserving of time. Then we haven't even mentioned Jeremy Davis, who's been active. Hasn't played a whole lot. I think he played one snap the last couple weeks. Not really playing a lot on offense because they haven't needed him, to be quite frank. But there's, you know, there's guys back there that are deserving of opportunities who are younger, who are more cost controllable. And, you know, they're going to have other holes to fill and they're going to need that $5 million, $6 million to go out and whether it's find an offensive lineman or find a free safety or mm-hmm. whatever the case may be, <laughs> uh, they're going to need that money to go, some, to go find something and fill another hole. So I think the writing's on the wall. It, it only makes sense that you start to look to move on from Travis Benjamin. The, the, the experiment hasn't worked. If you don't need him to stretch the field and you've determined that he is not your best kick and punt returner and you've relegated him to a gadget type of a role in the offense, <clears throat> do you really need to be paying a gadget wide receiver $7 million to play 12 to 15 snaps a game and drop passes and run out of bounds? No, you don't. So I, I think it's time to move on. And I think the coaches are starting to realize that even despite his speed, which does come at a premium in this league. He doesn't do anything else well enough to be to stick around. So it's time to move on. Yeah, yeah, I know. We, we sound like a broken record here because we've been saying that for a long time, but uh, looks like it might be time. I think the team has made their decision. And I don't think they're working him back slowly. It could be the case, but I don't think he's getting many snaps after the bye. It certainly doesn't seem like it, and they're doing something similar, it appears, with Joe Barksdale. You know, he played 12 or 15 snaps on Sunday. Uh, he's another guy with a big number, uh, another guy who's never healthy and not nearly as productive as they need him to be. And quite frankly, I, I haven't had any problem with Sam Tevy starting at right tackle the last couple weeks. He even played well at left tackle. I know they see him as a swing tackle, but it seems like, based on health and production, they're starting to see him as more than a swing tackle. So that's encouraging because, you know, Barksdale practiced, I think, a couple days at the end of last week or the 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 week before the Bron- the Browns game. He practiced pretty much all week before the London game and did not start. So he's been healthy basically for two weeks and has played 12 snaps in the last two weeks. Um, so it seems like they're starting to move away from him. So hopefully that's a, you know, a sunk cost that they can find some way to use some of that money a little differently and fill Again, fill another hole. Yeah, and Sam Tevy quietly been good. You know, struggled early on in the year, was terrible in the preseason, but uh, has really just done his job. Nothing really to complain about. I mean, he gets beat from time to time, which, you know, you can expect from time to time, obviously, but uh, hasn't done enough to hurt you. you. He really stuck out the first time he started, that's for sure. He's been really good in the run game, really good in the run oh, game, yeah. and I think he's getting progressively better in pass protection. He got beat. Once that I can recall off the top of my head uh, against Tennessee, and they ran a nifty little tackle and twist up front to get two guys free on that side of the line. They just confused him in Schofield. It was just a well-schemed blitz. But other than that, I thought he handled himself pretty well against Lowry and Arakpo and uh, really didn't have all that much trouble. Landry. So, or, yeah. I'm sorry, La- yeah. Landry. La- yeah, Landry and Arakpo. And he really didn't struggle as much as I would have thought he that he might. So I thought he looked really good. 
And uh, I like the fact that they are developing him and finding ways to maximize what he does well. And they're giving him some help sometimes to cover the things that he doesn't do well. So they're doing a good job coaching of getting him in the lineup, making that adjustment from him to from Barksdale to him, and finding ways to keep him productive and continue to build his confidence. Yeah, and I think you mentioned something that's actually pretty important when talking about Sam Tevy, and we've talked about how good Mike Pouncey is when he's out in space and you know getting Gordon out on the edges and having Okum run in front of him and how good he's been. But when Sam Tevy's out in front too, leading that parade, he's been really, really good. And you got to attribute a lot of Gordon's success on the outside, especially to guys like Sam Tevy and Russell Okum. They've been very, very good in the run game. Hello, I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation. And I want to tell you about my new show, It Seems Smart. It Seems Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seem smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain. Or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission. Or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart. Yeah, Tevi is a much better athlete than I think anybody realized when the Chargers drafted him. And he has been very good on the move at the second level, picking off linebackers, safeties, corners, and paving the way for those big runs and big screens on the outside. Very good. Much better than I would have thought he, he would be. Yeah. All right, so uh, you already touched on Adrian Phillips as your second one. Give me give me another headline. So my third headline, uh, it was going to be a negative headline, but I'm trying to put a positive spin on it. So my third headline is that I thought the players really bailed out a very ill-prepared coaching staff. Uh, they basically won in spite of the coaching, in my opinion. So I kind of lumped all the coaching mistakes that I saw into one one point here, but... You know, I'll start with Gus. After really three weeks of really good adjustments, it seemed like he went back to being a very conservative, vanilla zone defense. Uh, really relied on four or five rushers pretty much the whole game. There was really no effort to confuse or attack uh, a struggling Tennessee offensive line or speed up Mariota's process. They sat back with six or seven uh, cover with six or seven defensive backs and linebackers in coverage all day long and just let him pick them apart. That was re- very frustrating to watch. Uh, there were no creative blitzes, you know, especially coming off of the Cleveland game where they had all those really creative pressure packages, walking everybody up to the line, sometimes sending six guys, really getting after the quarterback. Uh, like I mentioned, they went back to sending four or five guys. They'd walk guys up to the line and then just drop everybody back in coverage. And Mariota would just wait till somebody got open and find somebody in the middle of the field. So, Including Melvin uh, Ingram. Including Melvin Ingram. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, so Mariota was way too comfortable. They were way too conservative on the defensive side of the ball. There was really no aggressiveness, really no effort to push the envelope or force mistakes. They basically, it seemed like they went into the game, it seemed to me they went into the game thinking, Mariota can't hurt us. These wide receivers can't hurt us. If we just let them do their thing, they're going to make mistakes and we'll walk over them. Kind of, as long as we show up, we're good. And that's not what happened. So hopefully whatever that game plan was is scrapped 
and is gone because it was not a good game plan. Anytime you allow the opposing offense to be on the field for, I think it was almost 35 minutes in a 60-minute game, uh, that's kind of problematic. So not in love with the defensive game plan. Would, would have liked to see some more pressure packages and be a little bit more aggressive against a struggling passing offense. Uh, to allow Tennessee to score 14, you know, score two touchdowns uh, during a season where they've only scored, I think, five offensive touchdowns all season, that was not encouraging. Um, from an offensive standpoint, I thought Wiz, again, was very up and down. Uh, they got off to the quick start, obviously. The, the touchdown pass on the first offensive play of the game was great. Uh, you know, go play action, drop Rivers back, chuck it deep to Tyrell, let him run underneath it and just run past the defense. That was great. Their first, their second offensive possession was very well scripted. They got down the field, had to settle for three, but put points on the board. That was fantastic. And then after that, it just seemed like they lost track of what they were doing. They abandoned the pass for the run up the middle with Eckler in the third quarter, really got away from attacking a very weak secondary. Um, they forced two red zone plays, one to Gates, one to Green, that were very ill-conceived plays that had no chance of guys getting open. Um, on, <laughs> I don't know if you watched the the all twenty two yet, Garrett, but on the touched on the attempted touchdown pass to Green, he was the only person running a route. They had Keenan and I think it was Tyrell run little decoy kind of hitch routes on the left side and just sent Green deep, and he was double covered. There was no chance that play was going to happen, and he was the only guy running a real route. That was kind of frustrating to watch <laughs> yeah yeah when, uh, when you have a a play in your playbook that is virgil green or bust that ain't working man that's you gotta rip that yeah, page out yeah that's that's again problematic not not a very encouraging uh thought process from your oc to be perfectly honest with you um and then you know you see them throwing the ball short you know, th- a three-yard pass to Antonio Gates on third and eight, and looking for him to pick up a a third, six, five or six yards on a after, on yards after the catch. Which isn't the That's first time they've done that. They've done that before. No. Yes, they've done that before, and it doesn't work, and it needs to stop. Um, and then you get to you know Eckler. I thought on the first possession, his first two carries were outside, and his first two carry each of his first two carries went for five yards. And then after that, in the third quarter especially, they got really bogged down trying to prove they could run the ball inside against Jarrell Casey. Everything was off guard, off guard or behind Mike Pouncey, and Casey just shoved the line back, and they stuffed the run, and it wasn't going anywhere. Um, I went back and counted Gordon, or I'm sorry, Eckler's running plays and tracked where they were. He carried the ball 12 times for 42 yards. He had... Five care, no, four carries. Four carries for 22 yards that were outside of the tackle box. The rest of his carries, eight carries for 20 yards, were either off guard or right behind Mike Pouncey. Um, and his first three carries that were outside the tackle box went for five, nine, and 11 yards, and his last one was a three-yard loss. So they were having a lot of success running the ball outside early in the game, and they got back to it a little bit in the fourth quarter. But they got really bogged down in the middle of the game trying to run the ball up the middle, and they were getting stuffed, and it was derailing drives when it was pretty clear that secondary couldn't cover any of their receiving weapons. So that was really frustrating. And then you get to the last six minutes. They've got the ball in a one-score game with six minutes left, and they're trying to run the clock out instead of put the game, putting the game away with a dagger when you know, again, that their secondary can't cover your receivers. 
So everything about that offensive game plan, in my opinion, was awful. You know, they, they made no effort to get uh, Eckler free in the middle of the field as a receiver. They do such a good job of that with Gordon. And every pass to Eckler was a swing pass into the flat. There was no creativity with how they were getting him the ball at all. And it really bogged him down and it bogged the offense down. It was very disappointing for somebody who's as explosive as he is. Um, so I would have liked to see more creativity out of the, uh, out of the offense. I mean, granted they scored 20 points on 44 offensive plays. Most of that was rivers. They probably should have had a third touchdown that would have iced the game, but Williams dropped it. Even still, you get the ball with six minutes left. You've got that quarterback, that offense, those receivers against that secondary. Why are you running the ball? Move the ball down the field, at least get a field goal, if not a touchdown and put the game away. So just going into the shell there, very disappointing. And then the last couple, uh, everybody noted, obviously, the kick coverage teams were very leaky, uh, very disappointing. The coverage was terrible. Uh, it looked to me like not so much guys missing tackles as much as guys just getting blocked and not fighting off of blocks. Uh, Tennessee special teams, I thought, played well. Chargers didn't seem like they were very prepared, and they didn't seem like they were really interested in fighting to get to kick returners and make tackles. And then the big thing, the last two minutes, you know, the Tennessee gets the ball down around the 14-yard line with two minutes and eight seconds to go. Chargers have their full complement of timeouts. At that point, it's becoming pretty clear they're probably going to score. And Anthony Lynn is standing on the sideline with his hands in his pockets watching the seconds tick away and did not start calling timeouts, I don't think, until there were like 45 or 30 seconds left on the clock. It was like he had no idea that they, that he was letting Tennessee run the clock out and taking an opportunity from his team away to get the ball back and go down and maybe kick a game-winning field goal. So uh, some pretty big coaching mistakes, in my opinion, some bad game planning, some poor clock management. They also, I thought, maybe had a chance to move the ball down the field before half and kick a field goal. They get the ball back with 36 seconds left and two timeouts. Just take a kneel in a game where they've moved the ball up and down the field pretty easily. Um, just, you know, too content to be ahead not really looking to stretch the lead and put put some pressure on a bad offense. So not real happy with the coaching, but the players bailed them out. They get a tough win on the road across the across the world and uh <laughs> they get a they get a big win to go 5 and 2 and it's a game that they no doubt would have lost the last few years and they pull it out. So at least at least we get a win out of it. Yeah, and that that's a great segue cuz that's exact that's my last point here and um you know, a, a lot of the things that you had mentioned was something I was going to bring up. But, yeah, I think it seemed like when Gordon was the late scratch, it's almost like they did not have a plan for Eckler. It's like they, they have these uh, design plays for Melvin Gordon and how they're going to get him open and get him in space and create this misdirection and create all this window dressing to free up Melvin Gordon and get him out in front in space. And... They just didn't with Eckler. It just seemed like very generic run plays where they're handing it up. You know, the first drive, I thought when he broke off the first two runs, I'm like, okay, this is going to be fun because he, you know, he broke a couple tackles and he was really, he looked really good the first two runs. They were both for five yards. Mm -hmm. Both outside. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Looked very good. And then it just all went to pot and uh the fact that you want to turn Eckler into your power back and grind out three four yards and move it down the field just isn't his game and it just seemed to me like they didn't have a plan when Gordon was inactive but um what I did want to bring up was the fact that 
this game seems to me like there are good things coming because what you mentioned about how the Chargers would lose this game last year. I mean, when you go back and think about week one where they have that block kick against Denver and lose, and they lose to Miami that following week when they missed a field goal at home, and then, you know, the week four against the Eagles when they just needed a stop, one stop and get the ball back, and the Eagles just ran out the clock and bled them out. And then Jacksonville, where they had, they're winning by a field goal with one minute left. There's that terrible roughing the passer penalty by Joey Bosa. They pick up two giant chunk plays, kick a field goal, and then in overtime, Rivers throws the interception. Jacksonville drives, wins the game. That's they had. They had two interceptions in the last two minutes yeah. of that game to ice that yeah. game, and they still couldn't close it out. And Trey Boston shuffled to the sideline thinking that he mm-hmm. won, and they ended up losing that game. But they, that's because they weren't good last year. And, you know, the last two examples, Jacksonville, Eagles, those were good teams last year. They made the playoffs, made a deep run. Eagles obviously won the Super Bowl. Those were good teams because they won and made one more play than the Chargers did. But, you know, if you think about this year, Chargers still have kicker issues, and Sturgis has made all of his kicks all but one game this year. You mean Badgley? No, I'm talking about Caleb Sturgis. He's missed a kick oh. in every game this year. He's only oh, been you perfect. said he made all of his kicks. Oh no, I misunderstood. yeah, he made his kicks one time this year in all the games okay, he's played. Gotcha. So, and then we, you know, the coverage units have been bad, and then they got good, and then they got bad again. Last week, Jabril Peppers gave the Browns short fields multiple times. Even with the Browns, not even the coverage units, Donnie Jones wasn't kicking very good. And then on Sunday, you know, Michael Badgley wasn't kicking it very far, and the hang time wasn't good at all. And there were big, big returns, and Darius Jennings had 156 yards on five returns. And then on defense, you know, you let Marcus Mariota basically drain out the entire second quarter, and they needed one play when it mattered. And Melvin Ingram reads Mariota's eyes at the line of scrimmage, tips the ball right into Denzel Perryman's hands. They get the interception. They don't score any points. And then at the end of the game, Adrian Phillips makes that big play at the goal line, stops Mariota, needs him to make one more play, not let him score. They score. But then the Titans go for two, and they go for it twice because Casey Hayward gets a penalty. So there are all these different things were happening where if you're talking about coaching shortcomings and special team shortcomings and this vanilla game plan by Gus and Wiz where I thought Gus really did a disservice to his defense and I don't know where that game plan came from when you saw the Ravens sacked the, the Titans 11 times the week before. They gave up so many sacks and their starting left guard Quentin Spain was out that game. They were down a man and they still didn't send the pressure. And you saw a lot of DB pressure from Baltimore to that game. And you didn't see Derwin James get after the quarterback much at all. You didn't see Des King do it at all either. They just let Mariota do it, and he kind of just picked him apart. But when they needed one play, Adrian Phillips made a play. He tipped the ball, and it went out of bounds, incomplete, and they won. So, you know, ugly wins like this, the Chargers just don't get in 2017. This year, they are proving that they can overcome bad plays. They just weren't good enough to get wins last year if they played bad. This year, whether it's coaching or some player mistakes or whatever it may be, it seems like they are a good enough team to overcome that. And I don't think I've been able to say that since we've started this podcast five seasons ago. No, Mm-mm. So we definitely haven't. So I would say this is a pretty good football team. And they're good enough... And you don't obviously you don't want to do that every week. You you can't depend on that that we're good enough. We'll play like shit and we'll make up for it later. That won't work against good teams. But 
you know, the Titans are a fringe playoff team. They were tied for the lead in their division, which wasn't very good. They were the Chargers were only a one game one game better than the Titans, even though it didn't seem like that, you know, in terms of momentum and all that going into that week. But they're not a bad team. And uh, you know, it just seems like the Chargers are proving that they are good enough and they can squeak out wins like this and get ugly wins, which we haven't been able to say in a long time. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. You know, for a long time, basically every year we've done the podcast, yeah. the storyline going into the season was they're probably an 8-8 eight and eight team where they have 8-8 eight and eight talent. You know, Rivers is going to win you two games that you probably shouldn't win, and the coaching's probably going to cost you three or four games that you probably should win. So you're probably going to wind up being 8-8, eight and 7-9, eight, 9-7, and seven, somewhere in that range. That's always been the the diagnosis for the team, the ex- my expectation for the team anyway. And it seems like they're building towards something. I don't know what that is yet. And I don't know that we fully have, you know, a a solid grasp on who or what this team is, what their identity is, just because, I mean, I don't want to take credit away from them because they beat a Browns team that I thought would keep it close. I expected this game to be close. I thought it would be relatively low scoring. I thought they'd win, you know, kind of a sloppy, like 24 to 12 27 13 kind of a game i wasn't really expecting tennessee to score a touchdown i just didn't think their offense was that good let alone but i also two. expected yeah let alone two <laughs> but i also expected the chargers to really get after that offensive line and be creative and aggressive and they really didn't do that so they didn't give themselves a chance to get after the quarterback and stop that offense um but they continue every week to overcome some kind of shortcoming. They didn't do it against Kansas City and they didn't do it against the Rams. And that's what the detractors will say at this point is, well, they haven't beat a quote-unquote really good team and they've lost to the two best teams in the league and they got kind of their doors blown off in both those games. Fair. But I think the the level of competition during this win streak is getting progressively better. And the games are getting a little closer, but they're winning the games. Uh, I would prefer they wouldn't let people hang around so much because I don't know that my, how much longer my heart can take it. But. <laughs> especially at 6 in the morning, man. Jesus. Yeah, especially at 6 in the morning. That was early. <laughs> um, but I, I do think they're getting better, and I think that they are – I think it's getting to the point where we can expect them to beat up on bad teams, which is encouraging because we haven't really been able to say that consistently for the last few years. I've kind of got that Baltimore game marked on my calendar because I think that Baltimore game and maybe even the Steelers game, those games are really going to define who gets the first wild card spot in the AFC, who's playing at home on wild card weekend and who isn't. And I think we'll get a really good litmus test for who this Chargers team is and what their identity is, particularly when Baltimore comes here to or comes to LA on December 23rd. I think that's going to be the the point where we say okay this is real or mm, they kind of had us fooled yeah so I'm, I'm looking forward to that game but i think that's the game we look at as that's where we're going to know what this team really is mm-hmm. yeah i mean they got to test right out of the bye too they got to go to seattle and play that seahawks team mm-hmm. so yeah they, they've got some tests coming up and you could they can keep talking about how they haven't beat any good teams but there are some good teams coming up and all you can do is beat the team you're playing that week yeah i mean you got to beat the team in front of you and that's what they're doing so you know to fly all the way across the world five thousand miles away and beat a fringe playoff team um i think is encouraging especially under the circumstances with all of the self-inflicted wounds they had during that game 
it's good to come away with it. I don't think it's a, you know, chest thumping, we've arrived kind of a win, but it's a stepping stone and it's showing progress in terms of their ability to overcome mistakes and, and win against average or slightly above average football teams. Yeah. And that's encouraging. Yeah. All right, guys. That'll do it for us. End of the Lightning Round podcast going on the bye week. If you have any questions for our podcast, which we'll record on Thursday, go send us questions through the app. I am at Garrett on Twitter. Jamie? At Lightning underscore round. And we will see you next time. Thanks, everybody. My name is Spencer Hall. My name is Jason Kirk. My name is Ryan Nanny. And when we combine, we form the, the Shutdown, Shutdown Fullcast. I keep telling you, we're not Voltron. The Shutdown Fullcast is technically a college football podcast, but it's also a show about lawn care disasters, regional grocery stores we love, Tennessee Batman, homeowners associations, bears and video games i mean there's also some actual football discussion like about coaches having huge contracts or coaches making terrible decisions or coaches saying really stupid things or the ncaa saying really stupid things yeah there's lots of stupid things in this big dumb beautiful sport sometimes we talk about football games allegedly if you want to take college football exactly as seriously as it deserves to be taken come find us on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts like this one The Shutdown Fullcast. It's not Voltron.